Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Steve Klipwitz and his wife Judy, my uh, doctoral advisor, dropped in for a visit to make me nervous as I preach. Thanks for that, and uh, make him feel welcome. This morning, I've got a... Uh, message that's part of a series we've been doing on how Christians are called to live respectfully and under authority in a number of difficult situations where we find that we might be the powerless ones and there is an authority or power over us which we may not at all times agree with and yet God calls us to behave a certain way as followers of Jesus Christ. In the first case we talked about citizens and their governments and the last time we talked about how as an employee you serve under a workplace master even when that workplace master is not a good boss. This week we turn our attention to the context of marriage because in Peter's world that was a very good example of a situation where one party had no authority, no power, and the other had all of it. And so he was teaching Christian women how to navigate these strange waters of marriage. And so we're going to look at that text today. Would you just read along with me? I'm going to read out of the ESV here. And it's 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Likewise, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. i got to tell you, based on that passage right there, some of you, it's going to take a little time to warm up to this sermon, especially those of you with X chromosomes, two of them. Um, You can see why. This is not exactly a pro-feminist passage. It's telling you to submit. It's calling you the weaker vessel. It's a bit insulting if you read it or hear it through an American lens, isn't it? Because this runs exactly counter to the cultural values that prevail in our country today. And yet, without apology, we say that this is the word of God and we must come to grips with what it means for us today. The teaching of submission of wives to their husbands is a difficult one, and if I weren't preaching through 1 Peter sequentially, I might have skipped it for a while. But let me just be honest with you right now. I am spending an extraordinary amount of time and energy walking with couples at our church who are in trouble. And I want to say to you that marriage is not an easy business. And some of the marriages in this room right now are in trouble. Now, maybe not a full-blown crisis, but you know that a storm is brewing and there's tension. And each day it's less than what you wish it was. And a lot of the tension arises because these biblical principles are misunderstood and simply not practiced. 
God does not give us this teaching to imprison or bind us in some way, but to free us to enjoy that marriage which God longs for us to experience. Now, I've got to say, it's also difficult because there have been terrible abuses of power by men historically, and often done so in the name of Jesus Christ. A belittling of women, a stripping away of their dignity, of their, their honor, of their rights. And I want to apologize to women just in general, because I have to first acknowledge that this is not an easy world to live in if you're a woman. And the church is not always an easy place to be if you're a woman. And because of those abuses, I can understand why there's pushback, resistance to this teaching. But I also want to tell you that this whole idea of submission has been so horribly misunderstood in the church that I think the misunderstandings drive much of the resistance. So I hope to dispel some of that misunderstanding this morning. You still with me? You've got to remember, Peter wasn't writing to women in America. He was writing to women in first century Palestine. And so it's important for us to know it just a little bit. Normally, I dwell on the background because I'm a history buff. I'm going to just give you a short version. One is that if, if he was writing to women who were Jewish converts to Christianity, Jewish women had very little power and very few rights. They were living in a very male-dominated culture. And so for them, it was hard to be a woman. Now, he was writing also to people, Christians, scattered throughout a place called Asia Minor. And the prevailing culture of Asia Minor was a little more advanced than Jewish culture in terms of the role of women. Women in Asia Minor experienced a great deal more freedom than some of these Jewish women would have experienced. And so that cultural setting, women weren't so bound up. They could have jobs. They could work outside of the home. There was a little bit more freedom. And yet there is simply no denying this fact. It was still a man's world. It was not a world in which women dreamt big dreams and conquered things and, and ha- had an incredible experience of life. So much of what they had in life was tied to the fate and the decisions of the man to whom they were connected. And so we appreciate that it, it was a difficult situation. Now, some of these Christian women found themselves in an even more difficult situation because after they had followed Christ, they realized their husbands did not. Now, I want you to notice something. When you see this passage, it says, so that even if some do not obey the word. At first blush, you might think that's referring to non-Christian husbands, and by and large, it probably is. But it also refers to Christian husbands who are Christian in name only and do not live in such a way that they take God's word seriously. I don't know, maybe some of you women realize you're married to such a man right now. Men who go to church, but that's about it. And they do not order their lives around obedience to the word of God. And so these women who honored the Lord and followed him found it that an already difficult life was made that much more difficult because they were tied through marriage to a man who did not follow the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ as given to us through the word of God. That creates an awful lot of tension in a household when one partner and the other are both operating on totally different value systems and rules for life. Do you see how that would create a lot of tension in the home? Some of you don't need me to tell you that from the Bible because you're living it right now. You and your mate don't agree on much of anything because your lives are built on fundamentally different value sets. And that has created a whole world of trouble. So what an encouragement it must have been for these women in an awkward situation to be addressed so directly in this teaching by Peter. The fact is, Peter, probably if he was a typical Jewish man, would have glossed over this teaching and said, women, that's your problem. Thank God I don't have to deal with it. But the Holy Spirit led him to teach this so directly. And I want to unpack that for you this morning. 
Now, one thing I also I have to show you is it says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. That word own is very prominent in the Greek. It's the word idios. That's not to say husbands are idiots. What it means is your own husbands. There is no biblical teaching that mandates that all women be subject to all men. And so if, if there's ever a man who barked at you in the church and said, woman, don't you look at me like that. You know, you don't have to listen to that dork. All right. That, that, that guy's not your husband. Show him basic human respect. But the Bible does not bind you as a woman to show deference to every man on the earth simply because he is a male. Because he carries a Y chromosome. This is a teaching in the context of marriage where you are bound before Christ to submit not to all men, but to your man. Do you understand that? So if I bark an order at you in church, you don't have to listen to me. Okay? But if your husband asks you to do something, there's a whole different set of rules according to God in, at operation here. I could already feel some of the women, you're like, where is this dude going to go with all this? And the guys just go, please say what I'm hoping you'll say. All right, so let's just calm ourselves and let's let the word of God unfold itself for us. What I've noticed as I studied this passage this week is that there's a very interesting pattern that emerges from this text. I've learned to look at the Bible in a certain way, that wherever there's a command given in the Bible, there is an underlying human tendency which God is seeking to correct. In other words, the reason he gives the command is because we are most naturally prone to do otherwise, and he wants us to learn to do things his way to get his results and his benefits. And so as I study this teaching Paul's giving, I unearth there, and I don't think I'm imagining these things, there are some tendencies women have in wanting to exercise power, especially in the context of marriage. And that's really the heart of this teaching, isn't it? How does a powerless woman nonetheless exercise influence on her husband, over her husband, in a godly way in marriage? This is not just to win over the unbelieving husband, but in general, more foundationally, how does a woman wear her power in marriage? And there is power available to the woman in marriage. This is not a debilitating passage for women. It is a very empowering passage for women. And this is not some bait-and-switch rhetoric. This is for real. God is giving this teaching to empower the women of God, not to strip them of power. And so let's look at that, shall we? The first power which God wants to make available to you as a woman, especially a married woman, is the power of silence. I'm really sorry, ladies. I just had to use the picture. I stumbled upon it on the Internet and just had to use it. I know that's every man's fantasy, right? At some point, they're like, what if there was a mute button? I could just kind of click and she would stop talking. Now, at the risk of drawing a stereotype, can we just agree that in... I just want to get rid of that offensive picture. (laughs) Can we just agree? I, I know it's a stereotype. But can we agree that in general, women like talking more than men? Especially in relationships. I, let me just see a show of hands. How many of you ladies are struggling under the burden of a man who just won't shut up? Always wants to talk, 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 talk. It's like every time you sit down to watch that favorite TV show, let's talk, honey. Every time you're just about to drift off to sleep, hey, let's talk about something. How many of you women are just sick and tired of this man who won't stop conversing with you? Yeah, I didn't think so. I didn't think so. The truth is, in most marriages... If the woman didn't want to talk, it would be like the desert in that household. They'd just be like, you know what I'm talking about? Because unless you're married to a preacher, men don't like talking. 
My poor wife happens to marry a, a guy who loves talking. But even me, there are days when I just wish, I really don't want to talk right now, especially about this. Now, listen, first of all, I want to affirm that tendency in women. I think it's very important that there's open and healthy communication. In fact, I think it's the foundation of a healthy relationship. I don't think women should ever apologize for the high emphasis they put on verbal communication because without it, you can't have a relationship. And so none of this is meant to somehow discourage women from their emphasis they place on talking. God knows if you didn't do it, the husband probably wouldn't. So go for it. Keep doing it. Keep up the good work. You are keeping the lines of dialogue open. Now, some of you men are like, yeah, but that's not my wife. Well, you keep fighting too. Because those people who advocate for conversation are making a healthy marriage. But here's what I believe that Peter is really saying here. He's not saying don't think that talking is important. But he's saying that's not the only form of power to produce change. I've dealt with enough couples... Dealt is kind of a bad word. I've walked with enough couples to know this. A lot of women in marriage have this bias that the only way to fix a problem is by talking it through. But I think what Peter is teaching us here is that there are other forms of power available to produce change. And one of them is the power of silence as a woman stops talking and starts living in front of this man. That's not to say that our words are invalid, but when words are the only thing in the absence of action, it produces irritation. Do you remember Paul said that in general to all people who follow Christ? If you speak in the language of angels and all of that, but you do not have love, you do not demonstrate that love, you become like a clanging cymbal, this irritating sound. If you just sat there and did this the whole time, could you listen to me preach? That's what it feels like when someone just talks at you and there's nothing of substance in what they're doing. That's why it's so important that women understand a tremendous source of power for the married woman is her quiet life, a life of conviction, and that's demonstrable because look at what it says. It says, when they see your life. This is no idle or passive silence. This is not a mousy woman who's afraid of confrontation and just goes, I'm too scared to talk, so I'm just going to be quiet. That is not the power which God seeks to give to to the woman. This is not passive silence, but an active commitment to to do less talking and more living so that this man who is obstinate and far from God will see the beauty and nobility of the things she says she lives for. Think about a woman married to an unbelieving man and how often she's tempted to harp him. You drink too much. The man at church don't drink that much. Oh, you're always yelling at me. The man at church don't yell at me. Pastor said this. Preacher said this. And after all, the man's like, shut up. I'm not that guy. You don't talk to me like this. And I think Peter's tapping into something that I want to say to you sisters as a life lesson. Because I think he's trying to help you understand something. I'm not defending this. We men are a, a twisted lot. We've got a lot of dysfunctions. Okay? And one of our dysfunctions, maybe it's a perversion of something good that God put in us, is that we're wired to fight. And something happens to a man when you attack him. He doesn't just move with you, he fights back. At least most men. Some, some men just lost that along the way. We need to regain some of that, guys. You know what I'm talking about. Uh-huh, let's play some football. But most men, you push them head on, 
They don't go, oh, you want me to move? They go, hey, I'm not moving anywhere. It's an instinct. It isn't even a chosen response. It's just we dig in because that's something deposited in us and it's messed up in some ways because we won't change when you call us to change. Women, you don't need the Bible to tell you this to you. This is the, Peter's pointing out what you've experienced in your own life. You talk and talk and you're dead on right and you're accurate and everything you say comes right out of chapter and verse from the Bible and yet this man will not change. He just won't change. It's like he's just kind of slow up there. Honey, pick up your underwear from the floor. Oh, all right, honey. And it's there every single day. That's my house, by the way. I, I don't know what it is. I just feel like laundry looks better on the floor. It's a twisted kind of dysfunction. And what Peter's saying is, you see, when you just talk, it doesn't always get through to a man. Just like Judo, sometimes yielding a little bit, uses his own force against him. Men are obstinate, but when he's faced with a vulnerable, quiet, gentle woman, something happens over time in the heart of a man. It's easy to fight back with an aggressive woman, but it's hard to keep oppressing a woman who is choosing the power of quiet action. He knows in his heart this woman is not a pushover. If she wants to, she can fight, go toe-to-toe with him, and ruin his life. She's so good at talking, she can make him miserable, make him feel like he's completely an imbecile. But this woman chooses to guard her tongue and live her life, knowing she could run circles around him. This is real power. And it's amazing the women who choose this route, the fruit they ultimately see in their marriages. All right, so far, <laughs> still look a little angry. Let's move on. That's another kind of power that this passage makes available to us. And that's the power of inner beauty. I struggled with which picture I was going to use, and I just said, you know, butterflies come out of disgusting-looking cocoons like that. But, uh, you know, there is this beauty that the world sees and a beauty that God sees. Now, I don't think they're mutually exclusive in that even physical beauty is the design of God. I think we know what is beautiful partly because God put that sense into us. But, you know, if you think that physical beauty is not a form of power, just look at the effect that a stunning woman has on most guys. <laughs> Men just become stupid in front of beautiful women. It's like they don't know what to say. Beautiful women get away with murder in our country, don't they? Because just the other day, I was at the Apple store waiting and waiting and waiting in line. Here comes this stunning woman, just walks in the store, and she's like, ah, walks right up to the counter, past all the people, and goes, uh, something's wrong with my iPod. And then she looks back and goes, were you all waiting? Sorry. <laughs> And she gives us, with a perfect teeth, a perfect smile, a perfect face, sorry, and everyone's just supposed to go, it's all right, you're beautiful, just go ahead. I think that's what she was expecting, but Mac users are a different breed, all right? In a PC store, that would have flown, all right? But in a Mac store, it's like, "Uh uh-uh, sister. And she was moved to the back of the line post-haste. But there's something about physical beauty in our culture. It's so glorified and worshipped that it is such a form of power, and women know it. Do you know that the personal grooming industry is a $30 billion business in America? Just cosmetics alone. Think about this. Goop that you put on your face and wash off every night down the sink, $8 bucks a year is being spent in America. $8 billion on face paint. I know it sounds stupid when I say it like that, but, you know, and ladies, don't stop wearing it. We, we like looking at you, all right? But what I'm saying is women know 
that physical beauty is a form of power. And when you found a man who's cross-eyed over you, you know you've got him. You know what I'm talking You got him. All you got to do is shake that thing a little bit. He, he go cross-eyed. He doesn't know what to do. It is a form of power. And the world teaches a woman, use that power. It used to be somewhat embarrassing to shake it and flaunt it too much. That's not our culture today, is it? Are women afraid to flaunt that form of, of power at all? You better believe they're not. I mean, I've, I've seen shirts today on MTV that aren't even shirts. They're like chains all connected together. How is that clothing? It leaves virtually nothing to the imagination. And believe me, men have twisted imaginations. Women are doing this as a, an expression of power. And God says, I get it, okay? And don't discourage women from being physically beautiful. It's not a sin to be beautiful or even to enjoy being beautiful. But there is another form of power that is more potent. And here's why. Ladies, you know, and please, this is meant to be no insult to people who are aging. But, you know, when we talk about hotness as physical beauty, you know, that hotness of youth when you're like, woo, you could cook an egg on this rear because I am just ready to cook. Let me tell you something right now. That hotness... You're going to lose it. It cannot be forever perpetuated. I've seen women try valiantly and then really try sadly to keep it well into their their 50s, 60s, 70s. It's like grow old gracefully. Stop trying to look like a teenager. That hotness cannot be kept forever. Time and gravity will take their toll and age and that physical hotness are inversely proportional. But here's the great thing. And it's not just women. Have you looked at men as they get older? It's seriously gross. Thank God you don't need physical beauty as much as we do. I mean, we'd all be single if that was the case, right? Over time, it isn't the physical beauty which holds the attention anymore. There are some people who are older that I think are so beautiful, and it's not because they turn my head in a shopping mall. It's because there's something of substance to them that I just find so captivating. There's a real person there, not just a face that cuts in front of a line. There's a human being worth knowing and emulating. There's an inner beauty which doesn't have to fade with age, but what's great is it grows with age. You can develop and develop and grow this beauty for the entire duration of your earthly life. And this is the beauty which has more enduring and true power to change the world than a good face. Do you know how many pretty faces there are all over the world that have produced absolutely no meaningful change in the world around them? I'm telling you the physical beauty is of some value, but this inner beauty is of astounding value. And in fact, God has given this teaching in the context that it's so powerful, it can change the heart of a wayward husband. Let me take a few minutes to brag on my grandmother. This is my paternal grandmother. She helped raise me when I was a little kid in Korea. And when I think of inner beauty, that's the woman I first instinctively think about. She is by far, head and shoulders above all the rest in this world, the most beautiful woman I have ever known in all my life. One of the greatest sadnesses in my life is that when we heard she was ill in 1976, we were living in the States, we got on a plane the next day to go to Korea to say goodbye to her before she passed, and she passed away while we were on that plane. And it's always been one of the great regrets in my life that I didn't get to say goodbye properly to a woman who had meant so much to my life. You know, my grandmother, when my dad was a college student, her husband, my grandfather, died. I never met him. She went on to raise five children by herself, and it was not an easy thing. 
Um, she made a living as a rabbit farmer. She raised a couple sheep. She had a small garden. She sold some crops at the market. And she made a living that way, and she sent two of her sons to medical school and another through college to be a, tw- a school teacher. And she led them all to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are such devout followers of Christ. There are people who just are Christian and churchgoers, and there are people who love Jesus. And she raised people who love Jesus Christ. I look at the heritage spiritually of my father's side of the family, and it's amazing. And it all traces back to this one gentle, small woman. You know, in a culture where mothers-in-law tormented their daughters-in-law mercilessly. That's Korean culture. Some of you know what I'm talking about because that's your family story. It's horrific when you hear the stories. It's almost like hazing. My mother-in-law did it to me. I'm going to do it to you. And in that culture, my, my grandmother was an amazingly gracious woman. She treated my mom like her own flesh and blood daughter. And my mom still tells stories with tears welling up in her eyes how selfless my grandmother was. And my mom watched and she paid attention and it changed her. Because now the way I see her being a mother-in-law to my own wife, Jeannie, is exactly an echo of my grandmother. The thing about inner beauty is it's so great it cannot be contained in one life. It spills over across generations. It blesses the next generation down. My mother learned to be a mother through my grandmother. And the amazing thing is now I watch my wife, Jeannie, and the most beautiful parts of her character are echoes of my grandmother, taught by my mother to Jeannie. And when my, my wife speaks of my own mother, she speaks with the same faraway look of admiration that my mom used to speak of this woman. This is the power of inner beauty. She knew that I was going to belong to the Lord, and she prayed a dedication prayer for me when I was little. She taught me to read Korean at the age of three, starting with the books of the Bible. She sowed faith into me. I still hear her voice in my mind. Strapped to her crooked little back, singing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, in Korean, over and over. That's why to this day it's my favorite hymn. And this woman exemplifies why Peter says there is great power in deep, quiet, inner beauty, which is imperishable. My grandmother's not going to turn your head when you're walking down the street. But if you knew her even for a day, you couldn't help but see her beauty. And I want to ask you ladies... Is this the beauty which you're cultivating? Because your butt's going to sag, and wrinkles will come, and things will change shape. And Lord knows you'll look at him, and his hairline will recede, and his gut will expand. And if that's all you've got to hold each other, well, that's a ticking time bomb. I want to ask you honestly, and from my heart, ladies, are you cultivating this unfading imperishable inner beauty which changes the world. It changes generations. It wins over the heart of a man. Are you developing that in the Lord? Because that is where your real power lies. I'm running out of time, so let me just wrap up here. Final power is the power of submission. I just had to use that picture. It's just the weirdest picture. I don't know why, but that that girl's got the eye of the tiger. She might actually win that match. Sometimes when I counsel a couple in conflict, that's the visual image I get, is of a man and woman engaged in this 
life or death arm wrestling struggle. And neither one's going to back down. And in the end, they will fight and fight and waste years of their life and nobody will win. No one ever, ever wins. No one ever wins. The most you ever win is you get your half of the stuff back. How is that a victory? How is that a victory? It is so sad to me when a couple comes in locked in a conflict where the only issue is I'm not going to lose this fight. I'll lose you before I lose this fight. You know, one of the forms of power that women are told to use in the world is just aggressiveness, assertiveness. Come on strong. Anything a man can do, you can do better. That's the teaching. And so some women have learned from this and said, the only way that I'm going to have rights in this world are if I take them by the jugular. And I understand that. When you're left powerless for too long, it seems like the only way you're ever going to make things right. But what Peter is saying is in God's economy, there is another form of power. It's subtle, but it's tremendous. It is a power of chosen submission as a choice, not as weakness. And because it is an expression of your deep abiding faith in a God who watches over everything in your life. You know, when I dig a little deeper with women who are pushing very hard aggressively, I find that their strength comes often, it's driven by a fear about something in the future. Something this man has done or failed to do makes her nervous about their future. And so because she's afraid of what she can't see or control, she's pushing really hard. It's sort of like there's only, you know, last I checked, there's no car maker who makes a car with two steering wheels, right? One person, whether they're, and Pastor Frank knows this, you know, he's nervous every time I'm driving because I'm so skilled. I can afford to do the movie style, you know, movie kind of stunts. But listen, only one person gets to hold that wheel. The other people all wish they could. And once in a while, when you're really getting nervous, what do you do as a passenger? You reach over and you grab the wheel. Right? Maybe you think that person didn't see that other car pulling out, so you grab the wheel. It usually causes an accident, but I understand the impulse. You don't trust that person to be in charge, and so you're longing to get control again, and you'll do it by strength. That makes sense to me. I have very little criticism of that impulse. Because I think it's the most logical thing. What God is doing here is teaching you something else as well. That's logical, but here's something illogical that's even more powerful. If you will believe that it's not that man driving the car, but God who determines the length of your life, you can let that story unfold as a choice. It is not weakness and passivity. It is a chosen act of submission to God and not simply to a man. It's interesting that Peter pulls up the issue of Sarah and Abraham as an illustration. I want you to think about this story. Before they moved away, Abraham and Sarah lived in a place called Ur, a land of the Chaldeans. And in that place, they were wealthy. She was the toast of the town. This is one of those women who could walk confidently into the marketplace knowing that at least half the women there envied her. They had stability, lots of... Lots of uh, of land and livestock and servants. They had a big household. And here one day comes this man, and this is what men sometimes do to their wives. Uh, they get a little wild hair and they go, oh, we've got to do this. And the woman's like, shut up, please. You're insane. He comes home and says, well, nothing's wrong where we live, but we're going to pack up everything and just go to another place. That's crazy enough. He goes, where are we going? Not sure yet, but I talked to God, and God told me we're just leaving. Say what? I talked to God. Don't worry about it. I'm not sure where we're going, but he promises that we'll land on our feet. 
Now, you know, women are fairly security-oriented. They need to know where things are headed. I get that. I'm a little bit like that at times, and so I understand it. Think about what Sarah was going through. She would be well within her rights to go, you go by yourself. Take half the service and take off. You're a crazy old man, and I'm not leaving this life behind. We have it good here, Abraham. And yet, to her credit, she left. And look what Peter says about her. You are her children if you do good. And listen, do not fear anything that is frightening. See, what Peter's doing is linking her act of submission to a faith that she had in God. Every woman can be afraid of some new direction that her husband is introducing, but the real question is not whether you trust this man, but whether you trust God. Do you trust him enough to trust this man? I don't know why God chooses to work this way, but he seems to give lots of new directions through the husband or the father in the family. I know that that strikes many women as being unfair. I don't know why he chooses to work that way, but he's made that choice. That doesn't mean there's no dialogue. I wholeheartedly affirm that conversation, many conversations, should take place before a major life decision. But at the end of the day, there's only one steering wheel in that car, and someone's got to take responsibility for grabbing it. Think about another chapter in Abraham and Sarah's life, which maybe Peter even more had in mind. Here she is, a tired old woman at 90. They've been trying for kids all their lives. And at the age of 90, at some point, you just go, all right, I accept it. We're not going to have children, Abraham. I'm 90. And Abraham has another one of those crazy conversations with God. He comes home. Well, he doesn't bounce in. Hey, Sarah, go to the bedroom. God told me, I'm 100, I know, but God told me. We're going to have a baby. And it says in the Bible, Sarah laughed. Who wouldn't laugh? She'd be well within the right school. You are a crazy old coot. I'm not having any of this. You're not touching me. We are 90 and 100, you crazy old man. No one's having babies in this house. He goes, no, no, listen. There's going to be so many babies. It's like the stars in the sky. Are you kidding me? But you know what Sarah does? She goes to the bedroom. Nobody ever talks about this, but they didn't just magically have it. It's a 90-year-old woman, a 100-year-old man. You know how babies get made. They had to do something. Think about Sarah that night. What's going through her mind? What are we doing? What is wrong with this guy? Is he insane? Does he have any idea what he's doing? But she submits. Do you know why? Because at the end of the day, She trusts God. She made a choice. And here's why that choice is so important. When women don't make that choice, they have the power to engage now in a very bitter power struggle. And women have considerable power. When they want to fight, they can fight. In fact, I think most women can fight better than men. And if you make the choice not to submit, you can then lock your marriage in a very tense stalemate. And I promise you, in most cases, it will be a stalemate. Most men don't go down without a good fight. And you will lose years of your life and most likely some of the greatest plans God has for you as a family simply because you decided to make this a power struggle rather than to realize God is the one with the power. I don't know why God speaks to one person and not another, but I know that God speaks. And when he speaks, if we engage in simply meaningless politics, little power struggles to figure out who's got the bigger fist, we lose everything. That's true in marriage. It is most definitely true in church boards, isn't it? 
I thank God every day for our church board. We have one of the healthiest church boards you can imagine. We go at it, boy, I tell you. And, and we don't agree with each other. Most of the time they are wrong and I'm right. And I try to convince them of that. But when I see the way that this group of men argue and fight, it's amazing. It's, it's like this unified refusal to get mired in politics because God is working and we are not going to stand in the way of that with a stupid, petty power struggle. In the end, someone must yield, but it is always a choice. When these men in the board back down, I never sense it's because they're weak or afraid. It's because they just have this godly sense, this is not a hill worth dying on. I will yield on this because God is working, and I respect them immeasurably for that. Too bad I ran out of time. I have nothing to say to the husbands. Just kidding. Let me just give a quick word to you men, in case you think you're getting off scot-free. Peter only has two simple things to say to you. You live with a weak woman, okay? And that means physical weakness, not mental or emotional. It just means if you really wanted to, you could pummel your wife and probably win. Most of you. Most of you. Don't try it at home if you have any doubts. First thing he says is be understanding. Be understanding. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. You know what that really means? That, that Greek word that stands behind is simply this. Do not be an ignoramus. Don't be ignorant as you live with this woman. Don't just steamroll over her or barrel her down with Bible verses about male headship and authority and all that. I'm sick of hearing men talk like that. If you ever have to pull out that, vo- that verse, you do not have it. All right, let me just tell you that right now. If you ever have to throw that one at your wife, you just don't have it. You got some work to do, brother. Listen to me. When you live with your wife, there must be not ignorance, but understanding. That means you must do the hard work of figuring out where her head is at. Do you know how few men ask their wives good questions? They just go, why are you mad? And all they're really asking is, how can I make you stop being mad? What do I need to buy? What should I say? Just tell me. I don't care why you're mad, really. I just want to know how to make you not mad. That's ignorance. And it's the, it's the usual way that men deal with problems. Here's flowers. And they wait and watch. Dang, didn't work. Guys, do we have to be that stupid? All it takes is a genuine question and a heart of inquiry. Honey, where are you at? Why are you pushing back against my leadership? Why are you having such a problem submitting to me? What? It must be me. I mean, because it's not just that she's completely rebellious. Something about your leadership makes her nervous. Did you do the hard work of figuring out why she's nervous? Because the answer probably lies in something the way you live and lead. Not always, but the majority of the time is going to be there. Are you asking good questions of your wives to understand them truly? Or are you just trying to get out of trouble like some fifth grader who's about to go to detention? Do you realize that's the spirit of most guys? I don't even pretend. I know. How do I get her to stop being angry? That's the wrong question, man. Here's another thing that, that Peter says to you. Show honor. Do you know what it says? Likewise, husbands, live with your wives. Most scholars agree that word live actually has in view marital sexual intimacy. It's not just building a household, but having sex in marriage. And he's saying, when you do it, do it in an understanding way, showing honor, because the woman's body is weaker. Here's what he's really saying. And the three million women in the United States who are victims of domestic violence every year will attest to this. Men, if they want to, can power right over a woman. They can plow her down. They can make demands, hide behind Bible verses and societal expectations and roles. But you know what a real godly man does? 
He treats that woman with honor, knowing he could break her physically if he somehow was possessed of such a spirit. But this is not a woman for his use, for his, for his protection, his honoring. This is the one wife which God has assigned to him to cherish and care for and honor and protect and not simply to use. That's true in the, in the marriage bed, but it's also true in every other context of marriage. Men, understand that you don't just make demands of your wife. You unlock in her the heart of submission to God and to you. Any man who has to say to that woman, you know what the Bible says, just be quiet and do it. That's not a man. And if you ever lay your hands on your wife, men, you are no longer one of us. You're just not one of us. You turn in your card, go to the ladies' room. You are no longer one of us. The minute you lay hands on your wife, you have a lot of work to do in your life. That is not what a godly man does. You do not hurt the very thing you're called to protect. And man, that's some of the reason why your wives may be pushing back so hard on teaching like this. is because they don't feel safe with you. They don't feel like you actually think about them first. They feel like you think about your career, your golf game, your happiness, your buddies. Everything comes first, even the church comes first. What about me? What am I except your roommate, your staff member, your concubine? Who am I to you, really? It's a question on so many wives' hearts. And until you convince them that you honor them and understand them, you have no real authority in that marriage. She is bound by the word of God to obey the first part of this message. But you are bound by the word of God to help her obey it by the man that you are. This is the partnership of marriage. It is a mutual submission, one to the other. And I promise you, if you will not just listen and nod your head in agreement, but if you will live this way at home, I will, I will do far less crisis counseling in the marriages in our church. And you will do far more jumping for joy and far more satisfying living together. May God bless you especially those of you who are married. If you are not yet married, may he lay on your heart such a solid foundation that you will not walk into the wrong kind of setting, the wrong kind of marriage. Understand how it's meant to work. Let's bow together in prayer. <clears throat> Lord, we want to just pray for the women in our church who are for us, who are believers, our sisters in Jesus Christ. Cherished ones. The ones meant to be honored and protected. And I pray, Lord God, that you will sow into the hearts of all the men in this church the heart of Christ towards women. Help us to honor women, to protect their dignity, to fight for their rights, to help them in their call to obey difficult scriptures like this. I pray for the men who are in marriages in this church that you will soften their hearts and humble them so that they will not go astray. And I pray for the women that you will teach them the power that comes through chosen silence and a godly life. Help them to be committed to cultivate that imperishable inner beauty that blesses generation after generation. And I pray, Lord God, that you will show them the power that comes not simply through power struggles, but through chosen submission as an act of faith. Help them to trust you 
so that they might trust the men to whom you've attached them. And in general, God, I pray for the state of marriage at Harvest Community Church. I pray that you will renew the spirit of the wedding vows for each couple present here. I pray that you'll give them fresh eyes of love for one another. I pray that through you, you will break the power struggles and the stalemates that are right now in in place in this church. And allow both sides to yield to your agenda and your great plan for their lives. I pray you'll heal the broken marriages and strengthen the healthy ones. And teach us in every context to obey authority because we obey you. We pray that as we do this, you will give us a witness in the eyes of a watching world. For we know that you are laboring day and night to win over the lost. Help us to be your partners in this and not to stand in your way to our ignorant disobedience. And now, Lord, may you send us out as your people, your family, to be lights in darkness, to be those who would preserve in a decaying world and preach the good news through both word and deed. May all these people be blessed to be a blessing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit of God. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.